as long as Israel goes out of its way to ensure that the words etched upon stone are also inscribed on their minds and hearts. Then, long after the disappearance of every emperor that proclaimed himself king of kings, Israel will itself remain as the monument to the true king of kings. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 68, Ozymandias versus Joshua, a tale of antiquity and eternity. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Around two centuries ago, the poet Shelley challenged his friend Horace Smith to a 19th century version of a poetry slam. Shelley had read of an acquisition by the British Museum of a portion of the torso and head of the pharaoh Ramesses II, who was known in Greek as Ozymandias. And Shelley suggested that both he and Smith write a poem about the emotional implication of this new exhibit. The poem, which Shelley composed, became one of the most famous poems in English history about a statue of a tyrant bearing an ancient inscription. It reads, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on those lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. And then Shelley concludes the poem. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. For anyone who reads it, the power of the poem lies in the contrast between a once mighty monarch and the utter end of the empire that he ruled. But for Jews reading Shelley's marvelous creation, it ought to inspire us to ponder the fact that there is one people that has not ceased to exist, a people whose land has been destroyed many times, a people that face tyrant after tyrant, that proclaim to the Jews, look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. And nevertheless, it is this tiny people that still remains. We ought to be inspired to ask why this is so, and it is chapter 8 in Joshua that provides at least part of the answer to the question. After the victory over Ai, the book of Joshua describes the fulfillment of a command by Moses, which we have discussed in a previous lecture, to establish twelve stones on which the Torah will be written. As we noted for the rabbis, these stones are the very same stones that were selected from the Jordan River during Israel's miraculous crossing. In Joshua chapter 8, a covenantal ritual is described, utilizing these enormous objects at the biblical mountains known as Gerizim and Aval. The twelve tribes are to be divided between these two mountains and are informed of the blessings bestowed to those keeping the covenant and the curses to come upon those that violate it. Chapter 8, verse 30. Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the Torah of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man lifted up an iron instrument, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and brought peace offerings. And he wrote there upon the stones a copy of the Torah of Moses, which he wrote in the presence of the children of Israel. The verses do not make clear whether the altar, the altar of stone, and the stones containing the copy of the Torah are separate, or whether, as the commentator Rashi writes, drawing on rabbinic sources, these very same stones were used for both altar and then scriptural inscription. Be that as it may, When we journey further through the Hebrew Bible, we will see that it is stone altar and Torah that will both emerge as supreme symbols of the covenant. 
the former defined by natural stones from the ground untouched by metal, and the latter by the letters of the word of God. For the great exegete and statesman Isaac Abravanel, the ritual here in Joshua sets Israel apart from all the famous conquering nations on earth. He writes, quote, It was an ancient custom amongst all the nations that any people or king who conquered a land, immediately upon entering it, would erect large pillars, one on top of the other, to mark their having traversed and conquered the area. And they would inscribe on these pillars that in the year so-and-so came the mighty king so-and-so, or the mighty nation so-and-so, to conquer this land. Indeed, throughout Italy and Spain, at any location which came under the control of the Roman Empire at the apex of their strength, one may find to this very day many monuments that the ancients erected." Abravanel further argues that Israel is therefore warned through this ceremony not to glorify themselves by building monuments to their own might. Rather, as he continues, quote, they should erect them solely for God's honor and that they should erect them on Mount Aval and build there an altar and write upon it not only the story of their entrance into the land, but also write all the Torah and the commandments, end quote. Abravanel's wonderful comment brings to mind the tale of Pompey, who, when he entered Jerusalem, came into the Holy of Holies seeking an enormous golden god or monument and found nothing and came out, according to historians, utterly flabbergasted. Barilan Bible lecturer Rabbi Tzvi Shimon, to whom I'm grateful for citing the source in Abravanel, further notes that this explains why the altar of Israel must be formed from natural stone. As he puts it, quote, the Israelites are not to behave as the Romans or other conquering peoples. They are not to build monuments to their own self-glorification. Rather, they are to build monuments for the sake of God who has given them the land. It is critical that the nation understand the nature of their conquest into the land. It is not their own might, but that of God, which allows for their inheritance of the promised land. We should add that this could be the hidden idea behind the requirement that the altar be constructed of unhewn stones on which an iron tool was not wielded. It is not through man's wielding of iron that he prevails, but through his devotion to God and his law. End quote. Thus, making a monument to the Torah is a warning to Israel and its leaders not to engage in self-glorification, not to do what ancient kings have done. Thanks to Shelley, the words, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings, became one of the most famous phrases in English literature. But these words did not emerge from the poet's own imagination. They appear as well in the rival poem of his friend Horace Smith. The words, in fact, clearly inspired both compositions. As best as I can tell from a bit of online research, the phrase derives from the Roman historian Diodorus Siculus, who tells his reader of a gargantuan sculpted form in Egypt bearing the inscription, King of kings, Ozymandias am I. If any want to know how great I am and where I lie, let him outdo me in my work. In other words, Ramesses had already, for historians, assumed the appellation King of Kings. That is what the poets use in their compositions. And when we research this a bit further, we discover that this was not at all unusual. Many a Middle Eastern monarch adopted this appellation. Wikipedia has an entire list of them under the entry King of Kings, including several biblical rulers that we know. Darius, a figure from one of the last books of Tanakh, who ruled at a time when the Persian Empire bestrode the biblical world like a colossus. The same can be said for another monarch that we will meet, Xerxes, who we assume is Ahasuerus from the book of Esther. One city that was formerly part of his empire bears, according to Wikipedia, this extremely Ozymandian inscription. I am Xerxes, the great king, the king of kings, the king of the provinces with many tongues, the king of this great earth far and near, son of King Darius, the Achaemenian.
the great king, the king of kings. Every one of these once mighty monarchs was akin to Ozymandias, proclaiming themselves supreme ruler and then ultimately vanishing on the ash heap of history. With this in mind, it is worthwhile to briefly compare the description of these 12 stones in Joshua with another ancient rock containing a series of laws. And that is the code of the Babylonian king Hammurabi, which has over 200 rules carved into an enormous black block of diorite. Commentators on our passage in Joshua have pondered how much of the actual text of the Torah would have been inscribed. For Nachmanides, it was the entire Pentateuch. For other authorities, all of the commandments in the Torah. But could one really put so many words on a rock? The answer, as we now know from the excavation of the antiquities of empires, is absolutely. Rabbi J.H. Hertz, in his commentary, gives us a succinct summary of this point. Quote, Some commentators have held that only a brief summary of the law could have been inscribed on the stones. However, since the discovery of the Hammurabi Code, consisting of 232 paragraphs, with a lengthy introduction and conclusion in all about 8,000 words engraved on one block of diorite, it is seen that the laws of Deuteronomy or even the entire Torah could have been written on 12 stones. The Behistun inscription of Darius is, in its triple form, twice as long as the code and is carved on the solid rock. There is therefore no reasonable doubt that, as Sadia and Ibn Ezra hold, the 613 precepts of the Torah were inscribed on these great stones. End quote. So Rabbi Hertz writes, and with this in mind, it's striking to compare the code of Hammurabi with what is created here in Joshua. Not in terms of contrasting the content of the codes, which is a source of interest to scholars, but in comparing the appearance of the actual stones themselves. The Code of Hammurabi bears not only the text of the laws, but also an image of the king being bestowed the law by the Babylonian god Shamash. The stone thereby serves not only as a legal inscription, but also as a glorification of Hammurabi himself. In contrast, the text here, of course, bears no image of Moses or of Joshua. It is only the word of the Almighty that is emphasized. Chapter 8, verse 33. And all Israel and their elders and officers and their judges stood on this side of the ark and on that side before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, both stranger and native-born, half of them over against Mount Gerizim and half of them over against Mount Aval, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded that they should first bless the people of Israel. And afterwards he read all the words of the Torah, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the Torah. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded, which Joshua read not before all the congregation of Israel, with the women and the little ones and the strangers that went amongst them. The Torah is the only monument that Israel needs, and as long as it remains loyal to the text inscribed on the stones, or, one might say, as long as Israel goes out of its way to ensure that the words etched upon stone are also inscribed on their minds and hearts, then, long after the disappearance of every emperor that proclaimed himself king of kings, Israel will itself remain as the monument to the true king of kings. That is the message of Joshua. And so it was, throughout the empires of the world, many more monuments would be erected as testimonies to the might of monarchs, and Rome in particular would establish symbols not only of its own power, but of the defeat of Judea, the Arch of Titus, and the Colosseum funded with the loot of Jerusalem. But a people that defines itself first and foremost by power cannot survive when its power disappears, whereas a nation defined by God's word will not die. The literary creation of Shelley is justly famous, but the poem of Shelley's friend Horace Smith is also excellent, and it has long been forgotten. It is, in its own way, more interesting than Ozymandias by Shelley, 
because, in Smith's case, the poet pauses to ponder what the tale of ancient Egypt, of Ramesses, tells him about himself and about his own people. After all, Horace Smith lived in a Britain that then oversaw an empire. And yet Smith writes that the existence of the statue of Ramesses, this remnant of antiquity, inspired him to imagine that one day the glory of England could be gone as well, much like the Egypt of the pharaohs, and that his own people may also disappear. Here is the poem that Smith gave us. Quote, In Egypt's sandy silence all alone stands a gigantic leg which far off throws the only shadow that the desert knows. I am great Ozymandias, saith the stone, the king of kings. This mighty city shows the wonders of my hand. The city's gone, naught but the leg remaining to disclose the sight of this forgotten Babylon. We wonder, Smith concludes, and some hunter may express, wonder like ours when through the wilderness, where London stood holding the wolf in chase, he meets some fragment huge and stops to guess what powerful but unrecorded race once dwelt in that annihilated place. End quote. So Smith writes, and as with Shelley, it is a poem that anyone can appreciate, but Jews, I think, especially. For we are called again to ponder the mysterious continuity of the Jewish people and the fact that Jerusalem is the only ancient city that has risen from the ashes that is utterly unlike the locations that Smith describes. It is not Carthage or Sparta or Babel or Thebes or Rome. There is one people that throughout its trials and tribulations endured, and even as the stones established at Mount Aval by Joshua disappeared, this people ensured that the words that were once upon those stones remained within their very souls, producing thereby a people so utterly eternal that no empire could overcome it. This is Mayor Soloveitchik wishing you a Chag Sameach, signing off. <laughs>